Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 17. It's on page 955 in your Blue Pew Bible. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Before we pray, uh, let's talk about a few things that we have to pray for. Um, one thing, um, this is kind of our annual season of, 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 of heartbreak. I remember hearing that phrase years ago. I mean, Boston is such a transient place, and for years it seemed like May was the time of year when people finish their degrees and they, and they, and they move on. Um, here, uh, our annual season of heartbreak is, is August. Um, as uh, students that have grown up in, in this church uh, graduate high school. And we get them for a few months more. Delaney, we've been grateful for every extra week that we've gotten from, with, with, with you this, this summer. Um, but this is your last Sunday um, here at CDK before you head down to Vanderbilt. Um, and so we're going to pray for you um, and give thanks for what God has done. Um, the other thing that we need to pray for, though, is this passage. Um, I talked about this last week. Uh, we're in a hard section of 1 Corinthians, um, really chapters 5 through 7 that we've, that we've been in. Um, these, are, these are hard chapters. Um, and I want to remind you of the encouragement that I gave you last week. Um, you know, as we're going through chapter 7 in particular, it seems like Paul um, deliberately addresses each and every different group that you could think, he talks to those who aren't married and those who are married and those who are divorced and those who are in marriages where divorce might seem like the only option, um, people who are married to, uh, to non-Christians. Um, that pretty much runs the gamut. That is all of us. Um, and, and I, and I want to encourage you. Um, as we go through these, these, these passages, not to hold back and not to draw back when, when we get to something that cuts a little too close to the bone uh, and, and is, is, is piercing your heart. I want you to remember um, that what we are here to do is to sit under God's word. Um, this is where he has revealed himself to us. You might hear me say, say things that don't sound quite right. You can take issue with what I say. And, and if you do, I would actually love it if you would come and talk to me about that. Um, you can always question me. 
Um, I, would, I would love to get together you know, and, and refine the way that we're understanding um, these, these passages. Um, but the thing that can't be questioned is God's character. This is his word to us. Um, and, and we're going to make very little headway as a church if we don't begin from the assumption that his word to us is good and for our good. Um, the other thing I want to encourage you to do, though, is, is that even if the passage is not this week directed directly at you, um, realize uh, that it could be directed at you one day as your life situation changes, and realize that there are others in this room um, at whom it is directed now. And if we are one body, if we are one church, you know, Paul in his letter to the Romans says, let love be genuine. He says, if, if one is weeping, everyone should weep. If one rejoices, everyone should rejoice. And, and you say, well, that, that sounds like a recipe for schizophrenia. Like, we're weeping and rejoicing all the time? Is that right? And it kind of is, because that's the messiness of life. And that's what it means to be one body. So we need to spend some time and pray for ourselves uh, and, and for our neighbors in this room, I mean, um, that we would receive this as God's word to us and be able to sit under it. Okay, so let's, let's take some time and let's pray. Father in heaven, um, it is a privilege to be able to come before you in prayer. Um, again, it's a thing that we can't take for granted. You have thrown open the way to your throne of grace by the blood of Jesus who made peace between us and you, by the blood of his cross, the way is opened for us to come with confidence and boldness and to pray. Um, Father, we do first want to pray uh, for Delaney and for the Wolbert family. We are so thankful uh, for the gift that Delaney has been to this church. We have heard her voice up here often, reading your word, leading us in song, and, and we know that beyond that kind of that upfront presence that she has had, she has had a much deeper and richer presence in the lives of, of friends, uh, siblings, her parents, um, and the others whose lives in this church she has touched. And we will miss her deeply. Um, we, are, we are so thankful um, that saying goodbye to her as she goes to Vanderbilt does not mean um, that she's no longer a part of this church. And so we pray that you would help us to remember her and to pray for her. We specifically want to pray now um, that you would be preparing a place for her uh, in Nashville at a church with roommates, with friends, with those who know you and can encourage her in her faith and, and also those who don't and who can see in her uh, a light uh, and a clarity in a world that is full of darkness and confusion. Father, we often acknowledge that in the church we all need each other's gifts to grow into maturity, and we pray um, that that would continue to happen for Delaney uh, as she goes to Vanderbilt, uh, that, that she would be built up by the gifts of others and that her gifts uh, would be gifts uh, to the people that you uh, put her with. We give you thanks, and we pray all this in your name. But Father, we also pray for ourselves as we come to this passage and we listen to what your Apostle Paul 
um, had to say to the Corinthians. Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts uh, to receive your word. Um, Father, I pray um, that we would be able to bear one another's burdens as we consider where what Paul has to say may touch us directly um, or where it may be impacting our brothers and sisters around us and where perhaps we can offer words of encouragement, um, a listening ear, a, a, a home um, in which to sit and to talk and to pray. Father, I, I, I pray maybe most fervently um, that we would all have the courage uh, and the boldness to reach out to one another uh, for prayer. Um, we know that all of us are each individually called to cast our anxieties before you. And we are grateful that we can do that at, at any time. Uh, but would you also teach us to pray as a people? Uh, teach us to rely on one another. Teach us to um, have the willingness, um, the patience, and yes, the love for one another to lift each other up in prayer and to seek prayer out when we need it. Um, Holy Spirit, we pray uh, for our prayer that you would inhabit it. Father, as we come to this passage, I, I pray um, yet again, and, and particularly um, as we're in a hard section, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it is a hard passage. Um, it's hard enough that I only got through half uh, of what we had read last week. I kind of knew that was going to happen, um, that we were only going to get through uh, the first section of um, verses 1 to 17. Uh, and sure enough, we basically got through, through 9. And so this week, we're going to look at verses 10 um, through 17. Um, let me remind you um, what Paul is doing here. Um, the tone in his letter has shifted a bit. He has is, he is specifically said, okay, now as to the things about which you wrote to me. So now he's responding to a letter. Um, as we said last week, um, there's two important things to notice uh, about, this, about this shift. One is, is simply the shift in tone itself. He has gone from stating things which are black and white, there is, there is right and there is wrong, uh, and there was, you might even say, a harshness um, to what Paul was saying, where he, he simply could not believe what was being reported to him about the Corinthians. And you remember Bradley two weeks ago pointed out that in, in, verse, uh, in chapter 6, Paul keeps using that phrase, do you not know? Do you not know? Are you, are you so wise and yet you don't even know um, what your bodies are for, for instance? Um, he's now shifted to where he's dealing with things where he himself acknowledges that there are some gray areas. He, he, he softens some of what he has to say. He says in verse 6, I'm saying this as a concession, not a command. Um, in our passage here, uh, in one place, verse 10, he'll say, I give this charge, actually it's the Lord. So here's something that is black and white about divorce. But then in verse 12, he says, okay, but this part this isn't something from the Lord. This is the way I see it. This is my advice. And he does often say, 
you should listen to my advice. Like, I am one that, that has wisdom, I have experience, um, but he intentionally softens um, some of what he has to say. Now, remember what we said last week, though, that even where he's dealing with areas in which there's some freedom for us to exercise prudential judgment and, and wisdom to make choices that aren't black and white, those choices need to be grounded on what is black and white. So even where there is uncertainty in life, Paul is constantly going to direct us back to where there is certainty. As we said, the, the, the two things that Paul keeps coming back to, and, and which might be the center of this entire letter, are these two truths. Who is God, and who are you? He keeps saying, you are made in God's image. You are united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. You're united to Christ in his death, which pays the penalty for your sins. And you know that the penalty for your sins are paid. You know, to put it bluntly, that that worked because Jesus rose from the dead. And you're united to Jesus in his resurrection as well. That is who you are. That is your identity. And who is God? God is the one who did that. God is the one who has revealed himself time and again as abounding in steadfast love and mercy. He is the one that got Israel out of Egypt, and he is the one who brought Jesus out of the tomb. He is the one who has united us to his son. So, so those are the bedrock things that Paul keeps turning back to. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 9 um, of this section where he spoke um, primarily uh, to those that, that aren't married. You remember, let me remind you, right up at the top of the letter, um, Paul said uh, that he was responding to this sentence, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And, and you remember, it's really important to understand um, that that is something that they wrote to him and which he is responding to. Um, most of the Bibles that you have, if you've got the Pew Bible, that's an ESV, if you've got an NIV, um, they put the quotations there. Um, and th that is our current best understanding. The original Greek doesn't have those quotation marks. Um, our best understanding is that that's where the quotation marks belong. Um, and as we saw last week, Paul is going to disagree with that statement as a general principle. The Corinthians are saying it's, it's a good thing not to have sexual relations at all, right? And Paul is going to say that's not quite right. Um, that does not receive the gift of sex, the gift of marriage um, that, that, Paul, uh, that, that God has, has, has given to us. Um, this week, he moves on um, from talking to those who are uh, single, uh, those who are not married, and those who are married, um, to now um, talking about divorce. He says, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Notice, notice again something we pointed out last week, that the charge is symmetric. 
Um, and just like we said last week, a symmetric charge saying the same thing to men as to women, that wives should not divorce their husbands and husbands should not divorce their wives, that is radically countercultural for Paul's day. Um, he, he's speaking in a culture in which divorce in general was extremely easy, but especially for men. Men could essentially just say the words, we're divorced. And that was it. Um, for Paul to say to both men and women um, that you should not divorce um, is, a, a radical, is a radical thing to do. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, not I, but the Lord? Here's, here's the one place in, in this chapter where he says, no, this, this is black and white. This is what God has, has said. Um, every time that Paul talks about marriage, um, every time that Jesus teaches about, uh, about divorce, um, which he does in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, um, they always come back to this one verse in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2.24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You, you saw Paul quote that in chapter 6 when he was talking about how it made no sense at all um, if we've been united to Christ to unite our bodies to a prostitute because that tries to make one flesh in two different ways that, that, that don't go together, right? So Paul, Paul that's, that's, that's the place where he comes back to this verse in, in 1 Corinthians. He's also there in Ephesians. Um, and Jesus goes back to that verse in, like I said, Mark 10 and Matthew 19. Um, that's the bedrock understanding of what marriage is uh, for Paul and for Jesus. That it is a one flesh union. As we said last week, that it's a union between two who are both like each other, in that they're both image bearers of God, and unlike each other, male and female, unites them as one flesh in a way which is ordered towards both generating and nurturing new life. Paul uses that in Ephesians 5 to say, and this is actually a picture of Christ and his church, a union of opposites that's as good as one flesh and generates and nurtures new life. Paul's words assume that change. Um, we, like the Corinthians, uh, live in a world that has a very different understanding of marriage. Uh, one in which marriage is primarily understood as being about emotional fulfillment. Um, different eras of history have, have understood it as being for economic purposes, right? But whether it's emotional fulfillment or economic gain, if, if, those, if one of those is the purpose of marriage, then you can see where as soon as that reason dries up, as soon as the emotional fulfillment is gone, or as soon as the economics aren't working, the reason for the marriage is gone. And according to that logic, it makes sense at that point to put an end to it and to divorce. Um, and in most of human history, um, that is how people have approached divorce. Um, 
it runs against this biblical understanding that what has happened in marriage um, has actually changed the people, that it's united them in a covenant that has actually changed in a really fundamental way who they are, uh, that from the moment of marriage, um, they're no longer two but one, and that this covenant that they've been brought into is oriented beyond themselves, but is oriented towards new life. And so Paul says, because Jesus said, not I, but the Lord, he says, the wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. It's really important that we understand how what Jesus says about marriage, how what Paul says about, about, about marriage can give us hope can give us the capacity to sustain marriages when they seem unsustainable, when they seem to be at the breaking point. Um, like every time that I've done a wedding, um, for a while I was doing, you know, just a wedding for a family member here, someone else over there, they didn't know each other, and so I got to recycle the same wedding sermon. Um, and, and, and this was the passage that, that, I, that I came to. Was, was Genesis 2. And one of the things that I have said to every couple that I have married, and, and, and one of the things that I have had to say to myself, um, is that the resources for sustaining a marriage, the resources for being faithful to this command, not to separate, not to divorce, not to break up marriage, um, cannot be found in ourselves. Cannot be found by looking within. It's an interesting thing about this, this verse in Genesis 2. Um, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, how often in human history has it been the case that the man leaves his family, leaves behind the inheritance, and goes and cleaves to his wife? holds fast uh, to her, leaves all that behind. I mean, think about even like the Bible stories that you know. How, how many times can you think of where the man left his family and went and held fast to his wife? I, I was trying to think about this. The only time I can think of that that happened was what we looked at last fall, right? I mean, Jacob leaves his family um, and, and goes and, and joins Rachel's. The circumstances there were not exactly ideal, Right? I mean, Jacob left because his brother was trying to kill him. And, and, and then he kind of got himself tricked into being part of his wife's household by his uncle Laban um, for 14 years. Right? So this is not exactly a model uh, that, that's being held up. It, the answer is that really you pretty much never see this. And that should be a clue to us. If God has said, this is how marriage is supposed to work, and you look around and you say, this has never happened, there's no human that has done this, then we ask, well, wait, is there any human that has done this? If this isn't about us, who is this pointing to? Who, who, who do we know who left his father's house 
Who do, who do we know who held fast to his bride to the point of death? Remember, Paul in Ephesians 5 says there's a great mystery in this verse because it's actually about Jesus and about his church. Um, he's the one who left his father's courts above. He, he, he is the one that held fast uh, to us. He is the one who has bound himself to us at the cost of everything. So that what is ours becomes his, and what is his becomes ours. Even our sin becomes his. His righteousness becomes ours. Paul and Jesus are constantly pointing us to this verse to remind us what marriage is really about and where the real hope for marriage is. It's not in ourselves. When your marriages are struggling, again, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage all of us. When, when, when these verses that Paul is speaking to us hit us directly and personally, when they're about us, reach out for prayer. Reach out for help. We need to together look to Jesus as being the ultimate guarantor and the ultimate resource for us to be faithful uh, to, these, to these commandments. Paul addresses one other group in these verses that we're, that we're looking at today. He then says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman who has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Again, it's symmetric. Again, Paul is speaking to women and to men equally. And then he says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? What is Paul saying here? In brief, he's saying, he's saying two things. And again, he says he is saying this. He doesn't have a command from the Lord, but this is the wisdom that he is offering as an apostle. He says a Christian should not initiate divorce with an unbeliever. I should say, by the way, that whether or not to marry an unbeliever in the first place is, is not in view here. That's not what Paul's talking about. Elsewhere in Scripture, it, it counsels against a Christian marrying a non-Christian. But here, Paul is talking about there's already a marriage, and now one spouse or the other is an unbeliever perhaps has walked away uh, from the faith. And what Paul says in brief is a Christian should not initiate divorce in that situation, but on the other hand, if the unbelieving spouse insists on divorce, insists on walking away, then the Christian is not bound into that marriage. That's what he says in brief. What's underlying this? Paul wants to set aside 
the misconception that staying married to an unbeliever could in any way taint one's own faith or one's own life or one's own family. On the contrary, he says that it can actually run the other way, that the believer sanctifies the whole marriage. And he uses children as the proof. Uh, Then as now, children born to parents in which only one parent was a Christian could be baptized um, on the basis of, of, of their faith. And Paul says, if the unbelieving husband or the unbelieving wife tainted the marriage, then you couldn't do that. So he uses that as his, as his example. It's interesting that what Paul does here is similar to something that he does in his letter to the Romans. What Paul is talking about here, let's let's make no mistake about this, what what Paul is talking about here is one of the heaviest topics we can imagine. I can think of of very few times uh, in prayer, in prayer with God's people, when prayers have been less fervently offered. Excuse me, I can't, I'm getting double negatives. The most fervent prayers I can remember with the most tears shed have been for unbelieving spouses, particularly in the tragic case where one has walked away. This is a deeply emotional issue. In Romans 10, Paul takes up a different, deeply emotional issue, where he talks about the fact that his own people, the Jews, have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And and, and you need to know, Romans 9, 10, 11, uh, we sometimes think of these as being the abstract philosophical parts of, of Paul's letter to the Romans, where he talks about predestination and free will, right? No, it is, it is a deeply emotional part of Paul's letter to the Romans. He says, I could wish myself accursed for the sake of my own people. And he makes a similar move in Romans as he does here, where he says, maybe, maybe the part can sanctify the whole. Now, he does not, in Romans or here, go as far as to say that the believing spouse guarantees the salvation of the unbelieving spouse. Because see, if, if Paul does that, then he pushes us to presume on God's grace. He pushes us to presume that if I am a believer, if I've put my faith in Christ, then I've done something that binds God's hands. I've put him in the position where he owes me something. He owes me the salvation of my my spouse. He owes me the deepest longings of my heart. And Paul will not allow us to presume on God's grace, which of course would be to make it not grace at all, but rather an obligation. Um, If Paul pushes us in the direction of presuming 
on God's grace, that he sets us up for bitterness. He sets us up for disappointment. He sets us up for living a life the way Luther put it. You know, Luther at one point said, I, I, I have been preaching this gospel of salvation by faith alone, by free grace my entire life, and yet I'm still in the habit of dealing with God as though he owes me something. And it is a dark place to be. It is a hard place to be. And Paul will not send us there. He will not encourage us to presume on God's grace. But he also will not allow us to stop hoping in God's grace. And this is, this is an important line. It's a fine line. It is, it is crucial that we understand that we not presume on God's grace, but that we never give up hope. There is quite simply no better hope for the salvation of those that we love than to put them in God's hands. There, there is no one more gracious. There, there is no one more powerful. There, there, there is no one else who, as Psalm 62 says, is both full of power and full of steadfast love, both able and willing to save. One of the, the underlying dynamics of our presumption on God's grace is that we forget that our own salvation is a miracle. We, we, we forget that we don't deserve to be God's children. That he has given us that entirely of his own doing, of his own grace, his own loving kindness. Salvation is always a miracle, just like creation. There, there is no better place in which to put our hope than in the God who makes something out of nothing and who brings life out of death, who, who brings friendship and peace right out of enmity. Um, that describes every salvation that has ever taken place, every act of redemption um, that, that, has ever, that has ever taken place. These questions with which Paul closes these words, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Um, they, they're kind of deliberately ambiguous, aren't they? Is the answer to those questions supposed to be yes or no? I think Paul is on purpose leaving that unanswered in order to help us to walk this line. That we would not presume on God's grace, that we would not presume that we can wield his salvation as though it were our own tool that were in our hands, but at the same time to never give up hope. Remember, remember Jesus told that parable? Jesus told that parable about an unjust judge, right, who, who ignored justice until finally he was pestered and pestered and pestered and just to get rid of the woman who was asking for justice said, fine, I'll do what you ask. And Jesus told that parable not to make us think that God is like the unjust judge, but to say, no, 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 God is nothing like the unjust judge. God is full of steadfast love. 
God is the God who sees you. He's the God who knows you. He's the God who remembers. And if that unjust judge will deliver justice, how much more can we put our hope in God? The way Paul puts it, he who did not withhold his only son from us, this is in Romans 8, he who did not withhold his only son from us, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Jesus told us that parable so that we should always pray and never give up. That we should not presume, but that we should always hope. I want to encourage us to pray for each other in that way, even as we come to this table, um, that this would be a place where our faith would be fed and we would have the capacity to always pray and to never give up. Can we pray?